This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Chase Sapphire Reserve. When I travel, I use Goop City Guides and our travel app, G-Spotting, which I highly recommend you download if you haven't already. It's full of trusted recommendations for places to eat, shop, drink, work out, get a coffee, hang out with family or friends. I use it when I'm here in LA and feeling indecisive about where to get ramen in Koreatown. Another good hack for traveling or eating out is having a credit card that optimizes your points. With Chase Sapphire Reserve, you can earn three times the points on travel and dining wherever you are in the world. You also get $300 in statement credits annually as reimbursements for travel purchases. So whether you're taking your kids out to pizza, booking the honeymoon suite, or riding a train to the office, you're earning rewards. Learn more today at chase.com sapphire. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Barry Michaels. To put it simply, Barry is one of my favorite human beings. He's a remarkable psychotherapist and one of the most intelligent students and teachers of life that I've ever met. Barry's psychotherapy practice is based here in Los Angeles, and he's written two best-selling books with his friend and colleague, Phil Stutz. The first is called The Tools, and the second, Coming Alive. What's so compelling about Barry's books and his philosophy in general is that he is interested in results. His work helps people access their own power and tools so they can keep moving forward in their lives. I was thrilled when Barry said yes when we asked him to join us at our InGoop Health Summit in London. If you're a fan of InGoop Health or want to learn more about our wellness summits, head to goop.com slash InGoop Health. 
Tickets are live for our next big day, which is on November 16th, just outside San Francisco. And I'd love to see you there. But for now, I'm excited to share what he had to say today. But there is such a thing as a healthy sense of entitlement. You are entitled to communicate truthfully, Mm -hmm. not intentionally hurtfully, but truthfully with the people who are important to you. And if you can't, you really have to rethink the relationship and you're entitled to rethink the relationship as well if that happens. So let's get to my conversation with Barry Michaels. Hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> How are you? It's great to see you. I'm trying to kiss you with the microphone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a little awkward. Hi, everybody. This is Barry Michaels. So, so much of your work is about exploring and channeling these invisible forces that you talk about that really shape who we are and how we feel. And for those of you who are not yet familiar with Barry's work, the reason that he's such a brilliant therapist is because they've, him and his partner, Phil Stutz, have created a set of tools, active tools that you use during a specific, whichever specific situation you need them in and they really help move you forward, as opposed to just sitting and talking to a shrink about just whining away. Exactly. Instead of analyzing why you have a problem, they actually give you a way to solve the problem in the moment. Now, the problem recurs, and you have to continue to use them, but eventually it becomes almost like second nature. Like, I used a tool in the Uber ride here, and I wasn't even really aware I was using it. I've just gotten so used to it. What was the tool that you used in the It was Uber actually ride? the mother tool. I was, I was suddenly like filled with, I, it won't be a problem to divulge this. When, when you appear with luminaries like, like Gwyneth, you're filled with some anxiety and some insecurity. And I just say, what am I doing here? Let me go back to LA and crawl <laughs> into my hole, you know? And I, I realized very quickly that was just bullshit negative thinking. And so I just, I, gave, I turned those negative thoughts into a substance. And the archetypal mother, which we, I can explain in more detail if you want, just sort of, the English word is hoovered. She hoovered them up <laughs> from me. She took all of the negativity. And I literally felt incredibly light and free. So what done. is the archetypal mother? The archetypal mother, you know, Carl Jung was this pioneer of psychoanalysis. He was a partner of Freud's until the two of them split in the early 20th century. Jung was more interested in the sexual basis of psychology. Jung was more interested in the archetypal basis of psychology. What an archetype is, is a pure form of something. So we all know what a biological mother is, but what is the essence of mother. The essence of mother is love, it's safety, it's nurturing, it's someone or something who believes in you so unequivocally that when you fail, if you can tap into her energy, she can lift you back up again, just like a real mother does with a, you know, with a child. And a lot of what I do as a psychotherapist is I don't solve the patient's problems. I try to get them in touch with archetypes that help them solve the problem. That way they can leave me as a therapist and go about their merry way connected to something much more powerful than than I am. And the mother tool, for example, you use when you're feeling 
feelings of worthlessness and security. I, mean, I, I use it for a number of different things. I think the mother tool is really good when you've had the adult equivalent of an, an oops, you know, like you fell down and hit your head on the table and you feel hopeless that you can't get back up again. It's like one of those holes that we fall into where you just feel like you can't go on, whether it was a relationship you had high hopes for and it ended or a business that went belly up or whatever, you know, whatever it is. She so believes in you and has so much confidence in you that if you can tap into that and borrow some of that confidence, you can get yourself back moving again. How do you do that? How do you tap into that? I do it as part of a specific procedure, which you can actually read about in Coming Alive. I don't mean to sell my book, but, <laughs> but it is in that book. You, you, so let, let's just right now, just imagine yeah, let's do it. Not, not your biological mother, not a particular person that you've ever met, but just close your eyes and imagine the form of pure love somewhere above you. She might look like a goddess. She might look the way she does to me, which is just sort of like a, a liquidy light that's just radiating warmth and grace and goodness. And once you can see her and feel her presence, take all of the negative thoughts in your head. I'm no good. I can't do this. I can't get back up again. I'll never have a relationship. I'll never be able to lose weight. You know, whatever it is. Take those thoughts and turn them into a substance. I know that sounds strange, but I don't want you to think about the content of the thoughts. I just want you to think of them as a dark sludge that separates you from the mother. Now, once you've turned them into a substance, let go of them. Let go of the substance. And just imagine that the mother lifts that substance up. It's almost like she just sucks it up out of your body and out of your psyche, and it disappears. And just as a final step, look into her eyes and see them radiating confidence in you. That's the mother tool. Thank you. That's a great oh, one. Thank you. Um, By the way, let me just mention, because yeah. most of you probably aren't familiar with tools, that took probably about 60, 75 seconds for me to sort of walk you through it. Yeah. But what, what Phil and I try to do is train people to use tools in under 10 seconds. So you'd have to learn that tool and study it and practice it and do it a bunch of times so that when you're in an Uber like I was having a moment with yourself, you just use the tool. Mm -hmm. And that's the magic of tools is that when you get good at them, they become practices that you can use in a very brief period of time that literally shift your whole being mm -hmm. right at that moment. Yeah. So it leads to another question of mine, which is, so if, if the mother is a, a feminine force, what is a masculine force? And are, how do you sort of define the masculine and feminine in culture right now? That was a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. I wondered how we were going to get it. <laughs> so think of gender as... We, we think of gender as biological. I was born a man, you were born a woman. But what I want you to imagine is that there are also feminine and masculine forces that exist in every human being. 
I have a feminine force inside of me even though I'm a man. You have a masculine force inside of you even though you're a woman. And the goal really of Jungian archetypal psychology is to balance those forces. Mm -hmm. It's not to let one predominate over the other. And for a variety of mostly cultural reasons, we have a hard time doing that. Mm -hmm. Men want to be manly. They want to channel the masculine force. Women want to be feminine. They want to channel the feminine force. And we tend to neglect the contrasexual force, whatever the force is that you're not biologically. Are we, do you notice in your practice that there's another imbalance occurring culturally, which is that so many women are kind of hyper-masculinized in a way, like we want to do too much, we want to do everything, we're the breadwinners, we're mothers, we're... I think we're finding our way as a society, and it's, to me, natural that as we try to develop the, that contrasexual side of ourselves, we're probably going to overdo it and become a little bit of a caricature of, of the archetype. And that, to me, that's natural. And I think it's also natural that as we try to develop this contrasexual side, there's going to be a lot of pushback mm -hmm. from the traditional, you know, the, what I'm thinking of in the United States is there's a tremendous pushback from the traditional masculine, you know, force. Right so, now? Yeah. Especially? Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. How so? Well, I don't want to get political, but <laughs> enough said, basically. <laughs> Need I say more? <laughs> so what does it look like then when the masculine is out of balance, and what does it look like when the feminine is out of balance? So let me, can I define the two Please, first? Please, absolutely. I, I think, because I think it's good to sort of have a basic definition of, of what we're talking about here. The feminine force, think of the feminine force as essentially receptive. It, it wants to receive wisdom. Sophia was the Greek goddess of wisdom. It wants to receive her and use that wisdom and inspiration to inspire the inner self, really to feed the soul, in a sense. In contrast, the masculine force is outer-directed. It doesn't give a shit what's going on inside. It just wants to make an impact on the outside world. It finds its identity by seeing what, is, what it has accomplished, how it has changed the outside world. Another difference is that the feminine force finds its identity via a connection to others. It doesn't the feminine doesn't really exist as an independent, solitary entity it always finds its, its identity in connecting to others. There's, it's, it's interesting, when they study the different communication styles of men and women, what they find, and what pretty much every couple's therapist will tell you, is that women communicate with a completely different agenda than men. Women communicate to connect with one another. So they don't particularly, they're not that interested in an end point. <laughs> 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 Much to the chagrin of their husbands sometimes. Men communicate to get to the point. If you've ever noticed this, you know, in a way you could say that men communicate in order to stop communicating. <laughs> it's like, let's get to that period at the end of the sentence, you know, kind of thing. Which always leads to these funny things in, in couples therapy where the woman is always saying, you know, he never wants to talk to me. And the man is saying, when does she shut up? You know? <laughs> So the masculine exists independent of connections. 
It's only interested in connections to the extent that they're instrumental in its making an impact on the world. It's like, I'll use my connections, but it's not for the sake of connecting. It's for accomplishing my purposes, all right? And a final difference between the two is that the feminine is really grounded in the heart. It has to do with love, has to do with compassion. It thinks differently than the masculine mode. It thinks much more intuitively and instinctively. So it sort of sees, as a therapist, I find myself using the feminine force mostly to see into people and to mm -hmm. feel what they're feeling and sometimes even to read things that they're going through that they haven't quite put into words yet. That's a very feminine mode of, of thinking. Whereas the masculine mode tends to be more about linear, logical, sequential thoughts that again, come to a conclusion. You know, we want to get to the point, you know, kind of thing. Another interesting study is about the moral development of children. And they find that young girls and young boys have a completely different basis for making moral decisions. Young boys make moral decisions based on fixed abstract principles, like it's wrong to take something that's not yours. So if a little boy sees another little boy take someone's phone and make a phone call on it, that's unequivocally wrong. The little girl will take into account much more the context and the emotional circumstances. So if she finds out that the little boy lost his phone, needed to call his mother, so he borrowed the phone from someone else, made the call and gave it back, to her it's like, not guilty. No question, not, not guilty. But that's a fundamental difference between the two. I don't know why, how did we get there? Because I was, no, because I wanted to ask you about when those forces become out of balance. Oh, yes, okay. So when- I only ask because I do think that, you know, at this particular point, we are yeah. really experiencing that imbalance. Yes, yes. And I think for myself, you know, I'm obviously, I'm such a doer. And so sometimes I feel like I'm slightly losing touch with the feminine aspect. Yes, yes. And I have to sort of focus more on becoming more heart-centered and kind of yes. employing those tools to do that. Exactly. So tell us more about how, I think a lot of us here are probably women who are maybe out of balance in one way or the other, and right. men as well. So if maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what happens and how we can yeah. correct those imbalances. So when the, when the masculine force gets out of balance, what you have is, is what you described, and even worse, what you have is somebody who is going to make a huge impact on the world, but in a very manipulative, exploitive way. Geez, I hope I don't do that. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't, but you know people who've done that. <laughs> so it's, it's like, a, it's like a, you know, a person who's uninterested completely in, in the other person's feelings or in their experience and is just completely fixated and focused on their agenda, you know. So the founder of Theranos would be a good example of a woman who's, you know, gotten completely out of balance in the mass. You know, Harvey Weinstein would be an example. There are m multiple other examples I'm sure you can think of. I'm not going to try to defame people <laughs> on stage. When the feminine gets out of balance, what you have is a person who may be very deep, and wise inside, but they have trouble putting it out into the world, you know? It's like, I, I call them dream, dreamers, people who 
come up with great ideas and then 10 years later the idea gets made by someone else because they didn't have the impulse even to go out into the world and make that idea a reality. The other thing you get when the feminine predominates is people who value connection so much that even though they're being exploited or abused, they can't set a limit because it's really hard for them to tolerate someone being upset with them or angry with them mm -hmm. because the feminine overvalues connection and undervalues that sense of like, I'm independent from you right now, bud. You, you gotta stop doing what you're doing, you know, kind of thing. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a painful part of that that says, I don't really care what you think of me right now and I don't care that we feel disconnected. You can't do what you're doing. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And now let's take a short break. One of the things that makes my job at Goop interesting is that most of our teams have different goals and objectives. But if there's a single through line that connects the various parts of our business, it's that we're curious about self-optimization. We're all trying to come up with creative solutions that help us get the most out of our lives, whether that involves resolving a fraught, intimate relationship or finding the perfect cup of coffee in a new city. For my content team, this means that our editors are constantly interviewing experts of all kinds about how they streamline, elevate, evolve, and simplify every aspect of life. And often they're going out into the world to try these recommendations themselves. For our travel and food editors specifically, this means they've collected an array of tips and guides to compelling places to see and eat in hometowns and far-flung destinations around the world. And because we're all about optimization, they've also searched and mapped out the best ways to get from various point A's to various point B's. One is with Chase Sapphire Reserve. With this card, you can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide. And your points are worth 50% more when you redeem them for travel through Chase. So maybe you'll upgrade a flight, add a city to your road trip, or spring for that coveted dinner reservation. Visit chase.com sapphire to learn more. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. How do we bring about balance? Well, it depends on what you're missing, but to develop the masculine, you have to be in the world more. Is that you, really essentially uh, 
kind of trying to sublimate that urge to, you know, or to even to fail? I, I think it, it's more what, what people fight against is the fear of failure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like people will come into my office, for example, and they'll have a great idea for a screenplay or a pilot or something like that, but they just can't seem to get started on it, you know? And there's always a great excuse. They have to, you know, redo their bookshelves that week or the laundry's always a big one, <laughs> you know, whatever. And, you know, what the masculine force doesn't come up with those excuses. It just does it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because I, I, I really treat a lot of, like, interesting people. And the most successful people in my practice are not the smartest. They're, they didn't go to great colleges. They're really not very psychologically sophisticated. They just take more action steps before breakfast than most of us do in three months. I have one guy who comes into my office on the phone making deals, and then he puts it down and we talk for 15 minutes, and then he's back on the phone on the way out. It's unbelievable. I've never seen anyone so focused on getting out into the world, making things happen, you know, kind of thing. And that's actually very upsetting to most people. We would much rather think than do. We have a bias toward thinking. When I get a patient who's avoidant you know, of, of action and I start to push them to take action, they start to come up with excuses why they can't. And very often what I hear them saying, not in these words exactly, but I hear them saying essentially, I thought therapy was going to be analyzing why I don't take action, not really taking action. <laughs> it's very upsetting to them that like, no, I'm going to actually push them to, you know, to take action. What, what is upsetting about being pushed? It's when you, you know, when you get out into the world, you're subjected to forces that are completely beyond your control. Ridicule, rejection, hatred, misunderstanding, and we'd, we'd much rather come up with excuses to avoid those forces out there than cut ourselves on them. And you know? why is it important to cut ourselves on them? Because you cannot have a full sense of who you are and what you're capable of without encountering those forces. You know, this is what you said in the introduction, and I'm a freak about it. There are certain forces, we, like we try to create self-esteem in kids by validating them. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against validating kids, I think it's really important. But it's also really important to insist that kids do things that they may not be good at and that they may fail at, probably will fail at, over and over and over again, and teach them the persistence to accomplish and to, and to overcome the difficulty. Because only in overcoming that resistance, overcoming that difficulty, do they really gain the sense of accomplishment that is the core of self-esteem. It's like, yeah. you, you, you wouldn't feel as good about yourself now if you hadn't done Goop, if you hadn't started. And what did you start with? An email list, you know? Yeah. So you had to go through a lot to do that. Yeah, and then you touched on something interesting is that pertains to children, which I think, you know, so many of us who have children, it's hard to not be in your ego because you have a child that's so easy to project 
like what you could be oh onto them. God. And so their achievements become your achievements and you want to remove their obstacles and remove their pain. And you know, it's almost like you want them to have the childhood that you didn't have. Totally. And I do think we lose sight of the gem that is pain. Yes. You know, we never want them to have their feelings hurt at school. We, yes. we want them to win all the races. We want them to... And, 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 and culturally now I think it's, there's so many ways to buffer them so how do we, or how do we encourage that, you know, the rough and tumble of life? How do we help build that spirit in our children of resilience? And how do we not take it personally? Yeah. Well, I think you're going to take it personally no matter what, <laughs> because you're a parent. And I don't know about you guys or how many of you even have kids, but there's no way to be so disidentified with your kid that you're not going to hurt when they, when they hurt. But it's your job as a parent, it's your responsibility not to project your pain onto them and to know that pain is good for them. Now, please don't misunderstand me and go away from here and say, Barry Michaels said to whip your kids. <laughs> pain is good, you know. I'm not saying that. But, but the natural, normal kind of pain that you get when you're mastering something you don't know, you know, when you're taking calculus and you're lost and no, no idea, you don't want to take it in the first place or, you know, whatever it is. That's the kind of pain that kids really need to overcome, and they need to overcome their fear. And of course they need support and help and tutoring. I had tutors when I was a kid. But the idea of going through pain rather than staying on this side of it is an absolutely crucial idea. And I don't really believe in talking about it with kids. I mean, you can if you want to, so much as just insisting that they go through it. You know, it's like, I don't know how many of you are parents, but you, you've probably, those of you who are, have had that situation where your kid is at the very top of a slide and is climbing back down, you know, doesn't want to go down the slide. And it's, I don't know, I, I'm just really not opposed to saying, no, you're going down the slide and you're going to love it, believe it or not. <laughs> because when they go down the slide, they do love it and they get a yeah. sense of mastery at having done that. And then that becomes a lifelong habit of I don't run away from challenges, which is really How do crucial. we remind ourselves in the, the moments, because we experience them as well, right? We'll, and, and I always find that, you know, sometimes things happen and it's so overwhelming in the moment that, you know, I'll forget to implement a tool or I'll forget, you know, to sort of talk myself through it, I'll forget. So what are the ways that we can really, I don't know, kind of continue to build that self-awareness around the positivity of negativity. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, that's a really good question. I'm not even sure I have a definitive answer because our society and our culture is so about escaping pain. I mean, so about escaping yeah. pain. I'll, I'll never forget when I was writing our first book, I saw a commercial for a treadmill that said, if you buy this treadmill, we guarantee it, you will lose weight. And I suddenly realized, no, you won't. <laughs> You've got to get up on the treadmill. And that's the biggest problem people have. So I, I, don't, I don't really have a, like a one-size-fits-all answer except to remind yourself constantly that willpower, just the will to confront things, is, is your greatest mm -hmm. gift. It's your greatest resource. And it's been given to you for free. 
And yes, it's really difficult to use it, and you won't succeed all the time. I have probably a stronger will than most people do, and there are times I flake out, of course, and I forgive myself for it. But get back on the horse the next day because, you know, look, you're going to die, and on your deathbed, what you're going to remember is what you didn't do, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. more you can will yourself to do the things that are difficult, the more fulfilling your life is going to be. Including, you know, I think so many of us have the opportunity to do something difficult all day, which all is day. tell the truth. Yes. Like really say what's actually occurring. Yes. And, and risk conflict and risk bad feelings. And right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because I think, you know, we're not taught to, we're taught not to hurt feelings. We're not taught to actually say how we feel. Yes. And I, I was talking to the psychiatrist, and he said something about... What he, a different psychiatrist. Yeah, don't get jealous. <laughs> Dare he, you. <laughs> he was talking about how the tongue holds all of the memories of everything that uh, we have said and not said. Wow, interesting. Which I thought was so interesting, because the, the power, again, to not hurt, you know? And so... I started to think about this opportunity that we have every day to just simply tell the truth, not to be mean in any way, but and how much of a risk that feels like yes. to actually just speak the truth. Yes. And so I wondered... And let me add one yes, thing. Yes, please. How unbelievably liberating it is when you have a, another person with you who can take in that truth and not punish you for it. Right. And really take it in and really appreciate that you just brought the relationship to a deeper, much more honest level. Right. And some people can and some people can't. Right. I think at work we have a couple of tenets that we try to stick by. And one of them is to speak straight. Mm. And the second is to listen generously. Mm. And I think if, if, if you sit down and you're about to have a difficult conversation with someone and you say, is it okay if I speak straight? Mm and they give you permission, what they're really doing is calling their best self forward, right? Exactly. Because they know. Exactly, and you're also marking this as a moment that's different from the bullshit socializing that right. we do with each other. Like, this is gonna be serious and I have to bring my best self to right. it. So how can we encourage that in our partners, you know, our romantic partners and our work partners? Like, how do we build a foundation of communication? So I think so many, especially so many women, we have such a hard time yeah. Saying the truth of how we actually feel or even noticing the truth of how we actually feel. Yeah. I think it, in a way, I think it almost goes even deeper than that. You, you, the, see, the masculine force to return to these two forces has a lot of entitlement in it. Now, entitlement is generally thought to be a bad word, especially if you come from Los Angeles like we do, where it's associated with you know, a cigar-chomping studio head who's yelling at his assistant for his coffee being cold or something like that. No, in England, entitlement is yeah, also yeah, probably, a Probably, probably. <laughs> but there is such a thing as a healthy sense of entitlement. You are entitled to communicate truthfully, mm -hmm. not intentionally hurtfully, but truthfully with the people who are important to you. And if you can't, you really have to rethink the relationship and you're entitled to rethink the relationship as well if that happens. Mm -hmm. And one of the hallmarks of the feminine force unbalanced by the masculine force is the difficulty mustering that entitlement to speak up. 
And I'm a freak about this with the, with the women in my practice. I want them to learn to feel entitled to that. I want them to learn to feel like, I have a voice, damn it, and I have a right to be heard. Person doesn't have to agree with me, that's fine, but I have a right to be heard. I have a right to speak up, you know, kind of thing. And there's a tool that you can actually use that systematically develops that sense of entitlement, and it works really well over time. I've had a lot of success with it. What's it called, the tool? It's called the entitlement tool, strangely enough. <laughs> 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 We're not very inventive when it comes to names. <laughs> Makes it easy to remember. (laughs) (laughs) So if we were able to really balance our masculine and feminine, what would that look like? Like, What would that look like in a man and what would that look like in a woman? You know, I've I've thought about that a lot since you sort of give me the crib notes for the the interview. (laughs) And I I actually think it would look the same in both genders because it's really not about being a man or a woman. It's about bringing something up from your heart. And I'm gonna be vague here because it could be anything. It could be love, light, warmth, compassion, creativity. It could be truth-telling. It could be anything that's genuine and sincere and deep in your heart. So that's the feminine coming up from the heart. And then the masculine would be putting it out into the world so that it can make a difference out there. And I don't mean it's gonna bring world peace, I just mean that it might make a difference in this relationship, or it might mean something to my daughter that I communicate honestly and directly with her, or it might make a difference in my workplace that I'm able to say something I wouldn't ordinarily say and have an impact on somebody that that person might need, you know, in a way. So I call that outflow because it's a flow of, you know, I keep wanting to use the word light, essentially, whether it's, and light is a symbol for truth and warmth and grace and goodness, but it's an outflow of that into the world consistently. What I, what I find is that most people in one way or another, they want to put themselves out, but they want to put themselves out with an agenda to get something back, whereas outflow has the quality of, no, I don't really expect to get anything back. I'm doing this because this is who I am. But that's, yeah, outflow, it, it's a very interesting tool because it's, it's, it's an experience of being wholly yourself, but also being wholly in and of the world. Mm-hmm. Because you're fully participating, but what you're bringing to the world, you could say, could only come from you. It's your unique voice. So I think that's what it would look like, actually. Right. And how do we access that? You know, what I do is, I, I'm doing it right now, I've done it throughout the, throughout the interview, is I just visualize this sun inside of me. The sun is a really good symbol because mm-hmm. it's virtually infinite. It's, a, it's an incredible source of light and life and warmth. And it doesn't have to be asked to shine, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't need permission. It just, that's just its job. It's just what it is, is to shine, okay? And it doesn't care what it gets back. You follow me? It's only getting back its own reflected light anyway. So the sun is a, is a symbol for a part of yourself that just gives freely without having to be invited or asked to give. So I visualize the sun inside of me, and then whatever it is that I want to say, I say with that energy flowing out of me. 
and I just try to keep it up. And really in every therapy session, I try to do that with, you know, with whomever mm -hmm. I'm meeting. And even if I say the wrong thing, I think it usually has pretty good results because the person feels like I'm wholly there. Like I'm really theirs for that 15 minutes. And what is the difference between sort of that unconditional giving from that place as opposed to giving from a place of where you can be depleted from? Like, what are those two different places? Well, you, you can, you, it's a great question. It's really two questions. The first is, when, when you come from the wrong place, you may not be aware of it, but it's usually because you're expecting something back. Mm -hmm. You're expecting the other person to change as a result of the bounty that you're giving to them. <laughs> you know, like, how could they resist this? Of course they'll agree with me, you know, kind of thing. Or you're giving from a place where you don't really feel the abundance of the sun, and that's when you start to feel depleted. See, my theory is, and, and you can only really prove this to yourself by practicing it, is that there's always much more than we think there is inside of us. So when, I, when my kids were young and I was seeing like 50 or 60 people a week, I would park my car outside the house before I walked in and I was really, truly exhausted. If you can imagine seeing 10 people a day complaining and just spewing <laughs> negativity at you, it's depleting, believe me. At the end of the day, I would sit in my car and I would think, okay, I've done my day job and I brought a lot to it. But this is an even more important job. Like, I really want to be there for my wife and my kids. And I I'm, and I'm spend all day every day purveying this idea that I have infinite energy inside of me, so here's my chance, you know, kind of thing. And what I would do is I would just literally act as if. I would walk through the front door and just, like, throw my kids up and down in the air and kiss my own and think, I'm, I'm acting, I'm doing a good acting job. But strangely enough, I would say nine times out of ten, it actually worked meaning that I actually began to feel more energized than I thought I was. So there really is, I mean, that's what the nature of the unconscious is. It's a part of you that you're not conscious of, that's why they call it unconscious, that has resources that you don't realize you have. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just simply by mimicking those resources, they become much more conscious. On that note, <laughs> it's a good place to stop. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here. Thanks for listening to my chat with the one and only Barry Michaels. You can pick up a copy of his book, Coming Alive, and see all the stories we've done with Barry over the years at goop.com slash the podcast. And you can learn more about Barry's work at thetoolsbook.com. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.